Welcome to Daily Devotion with Ken Gurley. Devotions designed to inspire you on your daily walk with God. Each day we walk through the vital principles of the abundant life. Our Lord can do above and beyond all we ask or think. Here's your host, Ken Gurley. Is this the last Christian generation? My pastor, the late James Kilgore, was a spiritually sensitive man. I owe a great debt to him and his wife, Imogene Kilgore, in fact, to the entire family who gave this couple to all of us. It was at a pivotal moment in my life. They helped me make some great decisions, and I'm so grateful for that. I'm not sure what motivated him in this regard, but he became convinced that like no other time in history, it was important that youth embrace apostolic doctrine, mission, ministry. It was one of the signal messages that he espoused and preached that we were in the last generation, the lost generation, and the lust generation. Like so many during this season of my life, what Pastor Kilgore said and did stayed with me, but I could never get away from his use of that phrase, the last generation. All this week on Daily Devotion, we're going to be discussing navigating this last generation. You may remember Josh McDowell wrote a book years ago called The Last Christian Generation. It piqued my interest. I purchased the book, read it, and became convinced that my pastor, as well as Josh McDowell, were onto something. I exerted some of it, filed it away in the research that I have. Yet today, I just feel drawn back to that phrase, The Last Christian Generation. McDowell, I think, has provided a great service down through the years to Christianity. As I skimmed through that book recently, it impacted me just like it did years ago. And yet I sense that whatever facts and figures are quoted back then, they've eroded even further today. The trend started in the 60s and 70s, churches offering Christian schools to counteract public schools. What were the results of that? A group in Lexington, Kentucky called the Nehemiah Institute provides what is called peers testing. This is to identify an adolescent's viewpoint in five areas. Peers is an acronym standing for politics, economics, education, religion, social issues, peers. The test is designed to summarize a student's worldview into one of four categories, biblical theism, moderate Christian view, secular humanistic view, and socialism. In testing 20,000 students from 1,000 Christian schools, parents of students who attend public schools have also attested their children. What were the results? 85% of youth from Christian homes that attend public schools do not embrace a biblical worldview. Those who attend Christian schools only scored slightly higher. In fact, it could be said that only six in 100 Christian school students fully embrace a biblical theistic worldview. Here's the quote that electrified me years ago when McDowell wrote it. It is clear we have all but lost our young people to a godless culture. Does this surprise you? When studying Christian youth, McDowell quotes some startling statistics that nearly two-thirds do not believe Jesus is God. 
Nearly six in ten believe all faiths teach equally valid truths. Over half don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. Two-thirds do not believe Satan to be real, and two-thirds do not believe in the Holy Spirit. The behavior of a non-Christian youth and a so-called Christian youth only varies by 4%. George Barna says 98% of born-again youth who claim to believe in Jesus Christ don't reflect Christian attitudes or actions. Quoting Barna, McDowell said, although many people attend church, few Americans are committed to being the church. This was years ago that this was written. This was before every teen had a smartphone or a tablet. This was before many of the more current teachings became prevalent. This was before the fastest growing segment in religion in the United States was the nuns, no religious preference. So it's no surprise then that we are in the midst of a godless generation, the last Christian generation. Are we there yet? How did we arrive at this place? How did we arrive at the place where truth has become relative? Truth is not simply objective, but subjective. You have your truth. I have my truth. But can I say that's simply not the truth? Truth holds true regardless of who believes it. It is simply reality the way it is. God's word is truth. Jesus is way, truth, and life. How did we arrive at the place where pragmatism is a new religion? Things are not right unless they work in an individual's life. Faith is to be tried on like a coat. If it fits, then it's right. If it doesn't fit, then it isn't right. How did we arrive at the place where we pick and choose what we want to believe? The faith is a buffet, a smorgasbord of sorts. A little of this, a little of that, all mixed in with a healthy dose of the latest worldly philosophy. This is called syncretism, an amalgamation of religion, philosophies, culture, borrowed from here and there. We live in the last days. Can you imagine this? Each and every American has his or her own religion, each a god of their making, each doing what is right in their own eyes. But that is swiftly becoming American Christianity. Everyone believe whatever you want to believe. In Barna's survey of American churches, he said that only one out of three Christians believe that God expects people to become holy. Only half of Christians can even name the four Gospels. Only three-tenths of Christian parents identify their children's salvation as critical in their life. And less than one in ten American Christians believe in absolute moral truth, that Jesus lived a sinless life, and that Satan is real. The Bible is accurate in all of its teaching and the other basic elements of a Christian worldview. It sounds foreign to us. It's not who we are. It's not what we want our children to be. We want our children to grow up knowing the truth, having a personal relationship with the Lord, being saved, growing in their faith, marrying in the faith, raising their kids in the faith. So what's the answer? How do we stop this slide? What can we do to hold back the night? I mean, we are fixers by nature, and we are tempted to simply try to fix this. Tweak the youth ministries of the church, adopt some new curriculum, and we can wipe our hands and say, there, problem fixed. But the problem is not and will not be fixed by these things. Oh, they may be part of the solution, but the solution goes deeper. 
It must go to the roots. This is what I would call positive radicalism. The word radical was first used in the English language in the 14th century. It comes from the Latin word radicalis, meaning roots. Going beneath the surface, not looking for quick fixes, but addressing the real issues. We speak of culture wars. We speak of passing this legislation or that, or electing people who reflect our values, and all of these are good. Yet, does that really solve the problem? Does that change our minds and hearts about anything? Here's what I think, and it's not what we probably want to hear, is first, we live in a toxic culture, and to a certain extent, there's no escape from it. This culture is the spirit of the age. It's all around us. We breathe it in. It affects us. We can't deny it. You know we're ignoring the culture when we try to wish it away, and we simply deny its existence. We continue forward with what we've always done in some sort of denial, that if we just ignore it, it'll go away. We fiddle while Rome burns, and we're losing generations in the process. We have to recognize that this world is not our friend. This world system is our enemy. We can't curse the darkness. This is a particular phenomena amongst us. We have hosts of people simply shouting at the culture, pointing out its flaws and failures. Or for the spiritual amongst us, we try to insulate any spirit that is behind it and call it out. But cursing the darkness of our culture does not change it. It's still out there. We can't totally escape from it. We can adopt behaviors and principles and draw lines. That helps. Yet the real response to external threats is an internal decision. We must grow stronger. That's the second point. In Romans 12, Paul doesn't run from the problem. He identifies the failing culture around him. And he says, here's the solution. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Holy Spirit can renew our minds. The Lord can give us the inner bracing to resist the outward pressure. The third thing we must do, we must pass along our beliefs. I think beliefs and convictions can be shared, but they are shared in ways that we don't always appreciate. When the next generation sees the previous one stand up for their beliefs, then they learn to stand up as well. When they see us model our beliefs and convictions before them, then they too can model them and act them out. Lyman Beecher is called America's last Puritan. Each year at Yale University, there's a Lyman Beecher series on preaching. Beecher was a dominant force, yet he's more known for two of his famous children, Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and Henry Ward Beecher, pastor in New York. Lyman put something in his children. They saw him take stands. They saw him resist the world's mold, and it did something to them. We need a stronger internal environment. We need to pass a good example along to the next generation. In other words, what I'm saying today, to navigate the last generation, there are no quick fixes. Yet I believe if enough of us purpose to follow these three simple steps, this is radical. And it gets back to the roots and causes things to happen. I believe that there can be a tipping point, 
and we will see a sustained awakening in these last days. Is this the last generation? My pastor believed it to be. Then it was the common thought. I remember back in 1967 when I was a child and Israel recaptured Jerusalem. A seeming countdown began that this generation would not pass before the coming of the Lord. I remember it as if it was yesterday. I was with my grandparents and my grandmother began to pray. Oh, how she prayed for her family to be saved. This generation shall not pass. Many leaders believe this is the last generation. The last generation upon whom the ends of the world have come. How long is a generation? It varies in scripture. 40 years is a common duration of a generation in the Bible. So is 100 years. Some hold to 70 years. But I believe this to be the last Christian generation that we are on the cusp of both a great awakening and the coming of the Lord. I believe it is time for this generation to arise and to get positively radical in our walk with God. And I can say this, there are many signs of optimism all around us. I am watching young people get so engaged in church, engaged in God and the ministry like I've not seen in decades. I believe this to be the last generation, but I will not live in despair. I will lift up my eyes. I want to be positively radical. I want to be a light in this last generation. I want people to see Jesus in me. As the night grows darker, the church should get brighter. Thank you for sharing in daily devotion with Ken Gurley. We pray this ministry has been a source of encouragement and strength to you. Please be mindful that your financial support enables us to meet with you each day. To give a donation or connect with us, visit our website at kengurley.com. There you will also find the latest books, podcasts, and resources. Blessed, 90 Days to Change Your World is Pastor Gurley's latest book. You can get your copy of this life-changing book at kengurley.com. May God's favor rest on you in every way until we meet again.